0: Well, one of the things that I do in ministry when I'm interviewing new people for a job, I've had lots of questions about this. How do you interview somebody for ministry? And um, There's some really regular questions that you would ask anyone if they wanted to work in ministry on a staff. You would ask them about the relationship with Christ. You would ask them more about what they think about ministry. You would want to know what gifts and abilities they bring to the table You want to know if they're going to work hard, that's a universal truth. Are these people who want to work hard on your staff, are they team players? You'd ask all those questions, and those are right and good questions to ask. But there's another question that I've been asking over the last five to ten years that's really helpful. And the question goes like this, who is your favorite author? Give me five books, your favorite books that you've read. Um, tell me who, what pastors out there or what bloggers or podcasters do you listen to? Who shapes the way you think? I want to know who's in their heads. I want to know who's shaping the way they think about life and about ministry and about what it means to walk with Christ. How often do we stop and process, right? How often in a world full of a lot of knowledge or a lot of information, how often do you stop and process what you're reading, what you're hearing, the, the news station that you tune into, that, a lot, that you allow into your mind to shape the way you think, the articles that you read, even the sermons that you listen to like you're listening to right now. And how often do we just regurgitate information that we've heard? Do you have a filter to what comes into your mind? Think if you're older think Goodwill Hunting, think Will Hunter and Clark in the bar scene where the guy's just regurgitating information. I'm going to leave it there for now. James Montgomery Boyce about 20 years ago said it this way. He said in an analysis of our culture 20 years ago, it's 20 times more true today. He said this, we live in mindless times. We live in a day where millions of people are drifting along through. Few give a thought to their eternal souls and most, even Christians, are unaware of any, here it is, way of thinking or living other than that of the culture that surrounds them. We live in mindless times. I want you to think about the world that we're living in right now. I want you to think about feeling and emotion driving all kinds of decisions in our day. Not truth, not knowledge, feeling and emotion. That quote. We live in mindless times is more true than it's ever been. But as the people of God, we want to be a people who love the Lord our God with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our strength, and what else? With all of our minds. We don't turn off our minds. Oftentimes the mind in our culture gets put on the bench and other players get into the game. The mind is an important aspect. I think what happens... It's information it goes through the mind, into the heart, and out through our mouth and our actions. So the Bible describes, in Romans chapter 12, we see that we're not supposed to be conformed to the world, that feeling, emotionally driven world that we live in. We don't be conformed to the image of the world, but we're what? We're transformed by the renewing of our minds. This is what Scripture would say. You go to the book of Acts and you see the Bereans, and they were studying, they would listen to Peter and Peter but then they would study the scriptures to understand what it meant they didn't just regurgitate it but there is some good to having right voices in your mind to regurgitate things that would be the word of God you have the scriptures you have God's word that you want to know it and understand it so you would live by it what about you who are your trusted sources Who are your trusted voices? What role does Scripture play in forming your thoughts, your values in life? The text today that we're in, Paul calls us to have the mind of Christ. To think like Christ. To have the same attitude as Christ. Because those things carry into what we do. Turn with me to the book of Philippians. We'll be in chapter 2. We'll start in verse 1 today. Um, we've been in the book of Philippians um, for a number of weeks. Page 980 on the Bible at the end of your row. I've been saying page 980 for a few weeks. I think we get to page 981 um, today as well as part of the text. And so 980 in the Bible next to you. The words in a minute will be up here. If you've got a Bible, turn there. little background as you turn there. Last week we looked at what it meant To live for Christ. To live for Christ means we labor for Christ. That we are lights for Christ. That we long for Christ. Even dying is gain. Even the awfulness of dying can be gain if you know Christ. In the last few verses of last week, Paul said we also do something else. He said we last for Christ. That we have courage and we have grit when we're facing trouble. And he's going to flip that a little bit today and he's going to talk about The compassion that Christ has. And he's going to call us to humility and not pride. He's going to point to the greatest example of humility and our response to it. Let me read 2, 1 through 11. The words will be on your screen. Philippians 2, verse 1 through 11. What does it look like to have the mind of Christ? It looks like we cultivate something, we consider something, and we celebrate something. 2, 1 through 11. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each one of you look not only for his own interest, but also the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, here it is, which is yours in Christ, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, because of this, God has highly exalted him, and bestowed upon Him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven, and on earth, and under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. How do we have the mind of Christ? How do we think like Christ? First, we need to cultivate something. We need to cultivate the disposition of Christ, meaning we need to take on the character of Christ Look at verses 1 through 4 back there with me. Paul's asking some rhetorical questions here. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, and the implication is what? And there is. If there's any comfort from love, and there is. Any participation in the Spirit, and there is. Any affection and sympathy, and there is. Complete my joy of being in the same mind. So verse 1 really gives us what I would call these divine blessings. And those divine blessings are rooted and a Holy Spirit-wrought behavior that pushes into unity, which we've seen before. You see it there? The same mind, the same love. That's unity that pushes in, verse 3, to humility, counting others more important than themselves. Intentionality, verse 4, where we look for ways to encourage others. And the result is what, Paul says? The, p- the result will be joy. A Christ-like joy. Here's the reality. I think if I pan out just a little further, here's what's going on here. Paul's saying, don't be prideful. Be humble. Don't be prideful. See, what happens with pride As it always backs, backfires. It always backfires. And yet humility always catapults forward. You see that all the way through Scripture. You see it with Satan. I will ascend to the mountain of God. What does God do? He cast him down. Adam and Eve, you know what? I think there's a better way. I think God's holding out on me. I'm going to take of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. I'm going to take of the fruit so I'll know more. He's exalting themselves and saying, I'm going to know more. I've got a better plan, God. And what does God do? They fall into sin and God kicks them out of the garden. And we see that in our life as well. We see the pride welling up. I deserve I deserve a promotion. I deserve rest. I deserve this. I'm pretty good. I do things pretty well. I deserve something. Pride versus humility. See, the result of pride is that it always, always backsfires in God's economy. And this is what you see in this passage. And yet you can look at some other characters in Scripture, can't you, too? And you can see the opposite. You can see the humility of Joseph and how he goes down to a pit and yet he's faithful to God and God exalts him. Eventually, at the proper time, not instantly, he was there for a long time. You think of David. God said, David, you're going to be the king when he's a shepherd boy. And he had plenty of opportunity to take Saul out and he didn't. Because he said, God raises up kings and puts kings down and I'm not taking it into my own hands. God will exalt me at the proper time and he did and the ultimate example of that is Jesus where he humbled himself to the point of death death on a cross and God exalted him that's what we're about to see by the way so pride backfires humility catapults this is what we see in Scripture there's one place in Scripture I want to take you to real quick first Peter chapter 5 words will be on the screen first Peter 5 5 and 6 He's just talked to the elders of the church and said, you're supposed to be shepherds. And then he talks to the young men of the church and then he says this about all people. He says in 1 Peter chapter 5, 5 and 6, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility. My kids got the, you, you ever seen those comfies? they like, they cover your body and they're huge and they keep you warm in the winter. Clothe yourselves, put humility on. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility towards one another. For God does what? Here it is. Here's the backfire. Opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, verse 6. Therefore, under the mighty hand of God. So at the proper time, not in the microwave culture that we say, okay, God's going to exalt me tomorrow if I do this today. But at the proper time. And the proper time might be when you go to glory. We're not assured of the, any of this today. But at the proper time... He will exalt you. Pride and humility. Inverse relationship. You think of a catapult. You know, you watch these old movies. Man, this is a bit, not a really great movie, but like 1991 version of Robin Hood. You know, where, where um, Kevin Costner and Morgan Freeman in their younger days, they have like swords on. And they crank this catapult down. And there's tension created. And they get in this thing. And they catapult over Think about a catapult. Less about the movie, more about the catapult. It ratchets down so it can do what? So it can be raised up. And this is the way it is for us as believers. To cultivate the disposition of Christ is to pursue humility. And it often brings tension. Listen, we can't have as a church unity. As this text is saying in verse 2 and 3 and 4. of the same mind. We can't have unity in a church without with with a lot of pride because what what does pride do pride divides you can't be thoughtful to others and think about others if we're prideful and all we're thinking about is ourselves our own selfish as this text will say selfish ambition and then look at verse four really intently verse four says "Let each of you look that word look is literally the word scope out don't look or scope out your own interest but also the interest of others. Scope out how you can serve other people. You've got to drop a lot of pride to do that. You have to have humility, a Holy Spirit wrought humility to do that. You know those people? You know those people that are always intentional about caring for the hurting in their church? Or bringing a meal to the family who's just had their fourth child? Or knowing the needs of the body? I'm going to tell you this. I've been in ministry for almost 20 years, and I've never seen, I've been in three churches, I don't think I've ever seen a church that loves each other and cares for each other and is intentional in the way that I've seen in the last year and a half, this church be to one another. That's a beautiful thing. That's a Holy Spirit wrought thing in this church. And I hope if you're new that you're beginning to experience that with the friendliness of this church and the care of this church for you. That's an amazing thing to have as a church. I love it. I hope you're encouraged by that. I'm going to continue on in that. That's a mark of a church that's not prideful, but humble. And I'll tell you, there's a lot of churches, and I've said this before, there's a lot of churches in the last year, whether it's the mask issue, whether it's um, the social justice issue, whether it's just generally life in a church that have not stayed unified at all because of pride. But see, when we drop pride, we can stay unified. But when we have pride, it will always divide. It's a beautiful thing to be a pastor of a church that doesn't see disunity and doesn't see pride, but sees care for one another intentionality with one another I love it and we could teach about a lot of things in this passage as we apply this we could have a marriage conference in this these four verses we could have a parenting conference or a leadership conference and men these are great verses to consider for you they're great verses to consider for you and and I'll tell you why because we tend to aim toward our own glory our own gain our own ambition Rather than his glory, his gain, his ambition. So we have to ratchet down to be lifted up in God's timing. I want to clarify something about humility, though. <laughs> what it is and what it's not. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. You know, you know, I'm not really not that good. That person's better. Like somebody pays you a compliment. You're like, no, I'm not that good at that. that that's not Humility. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking about yourself less. Think about the interest of others. I want want you to see a transition that Paul does here. You're meant to see it from verse 4 to verse 5. Look at verse 5. So he's, he's talking about these divine blessings that come from Holy Spirit wrought behaviors that result in joy. So he's kind of charging them. He's saying, be compassionate. Care for one another. Be humble. Don't be prideful. And then he just turns and he, and he points, effectively, to Jesus. You, you want to know humility? You want to see it? Look at Jesus. Look at it. Verse 5. He tees it up right here. Have this mind among yourselves. Think this way. Have this attitude, verse 5, which is yours in Christ. Who, so he points to Christ, he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. So your second idea is this. We've got to cultivate the disposition of Christ, but the way that you do that is to consider the humility of Christ. The humiliation of Christ, the dissension of Christ, the incarnation of Christ, and the crucifixion of Christ. Because it's all dripping with humility. I want you to think about that just for a minute. I want you to think from a human perspective. Okay, hear me out. From a human perspective, you're the Son of God and you've existed for all eternity with the Father and the Holy Spirit in heaven. You're upholding the word The world, by the word of your power, you're pre-existent, you're hanging out with the Father, you're hanging out with the Spirit, that's some pretty good fellowship. That's some pretty good relationship. That's not messy, like our lives and our relationships. Would you want, human perspective, would you want to go from that to come down to planet Earth that is broken? Is that an assignment you would want you would if you're God, because you don't work that way. But would you want that assignment? Think about it this way: If you get on a plane tomorrow for work, um, you don't think twice about getting on a plane and going to Dallas. Maybe other than you got to see the Texas Star and experience cowboy fans. Okay, I got that. But you don't—you're not worried about safety and security. When you fly in, you're looking down. You're, you've got a, a modern-day city. You're not worried about it. You're fine. Your wife's not saying, "I don't know." Maybe you shouldn't go to Dallas. It's a big deal. It's a scary place. But what if you did this? What if you decided you're going to get on a plane and you're going to fly into Cambodia? Because you want to king- take the kingdom and the gospel there. You want to go to Cambodia, but to get there, you're on this puddle jumper plane flying into this dirt runway, and the locals aren't real happy you're there probably. How do you feel when you're flying into that? A broken place, a dark place. I don't know if you've ever flown into troubled places in the world, but there's a big difference between flying into Dallas and flying into a troubled place. There's a knot in your stomach to say, hmm, wonder what this is going to be like. Jesus descended, He humbled Himself and became a man. So the ascension of Christ shows us His humility. His incarnation also shows us His humility. Look at the phrases there that you see in this text. Form, you see it three times in in, in those verses, between verses 5 through 8. He took on the form, He was in the form of God, born in the likeness of men. Human form. The word form in in the Greek is the word we get for morph. When you think about something morphing, you might think of something like a a caterpillar to the butterfly. So there's not only a change in appearance, but there's also a change in kind of internal nature. Caterpillar to butterfly, that's not the word here. Don't think metamorphosis, okay? It's just a change in a sense of external appearance. And so when you read he was in the form of God... It was his external appearance, but he was still, this is really important, Jesus was still just as much deity when he came to the earth and took human form. That's really important. He didn't lose his deity and just become a man for a season, and then, and then after he rose, he became, he became deity again. That's not what this text is teaching at all. Not only that, I don't think he took off, excuse me, or lost any of his divine attributes as a human being. He was fully God and fully man. Here's what I think it means, the idea of form and also the idea in verse 7, if you look at it, of emptying. When you think of emptying, it's just dumped out and there's nothing there. The word kenosis, often this passage is called the kenosis passages, the emptying of Christ. A lot of Blood, sweat, and tears, and paper spilled over this word and this passage. What does it mean that Christ emptied himself? Let me tell you what it doesn't mean. It does not mean that he put off deity and became just a man, an ordinary man. It does not mean that he lost his divine attributes. Here's what both of those ideas mean. You ready? He veiled his glory and he veiled his power for a time. He was fully God, and fully man, and He veiled His power, and He veiled His glory. You see that in John 17. So if anybody, if you hear anybody say, hey, Jesus just became a man, He was just a man, and then He put His deity back on, mm mm-mm, that's some bad teaching. Maybe last week, when you talked about the Trinity, I don't know how far into this you got, but Jesus the man is still fully God. Let me illustrate in two ways. The first one is about the deity part and the veiling part. Um, I'm just going to say this. Um, in the last 20 years, uh, we, we've seen a lot of uh, superheroes and superhero movies. Um, but the greatest superhero, just to be clear, I'm here all day, is Superman. Period. I'm here all day. If you want to talk about it, we can also have the Michael Jordan-LeBron conversation. That's fine. But Superman is the greatest superhero. I grew up with Christopher Reeves as Superman. He was bad, y'all. He was awesome. Superman think about it. He came to this earth. This breaks down at a certain point, so just bear with me. It does break down on one side. All do, right Brandon? It breaks down. But think about it. He had to veil his power and his glory as Superman, particularly as a kid. His dad said, no, you've got to veil it. You've got to control it. But one day, he used it. One day, Everybody saw his glory and his power. Just stop right there. Don't think about the implication of both of those things. The second one is probably better. And it really relates to not only the veiling of glory, but the taking off, the emptying part. What does that mean, to empty? The story of an African chief in a village. And this chief wore a head garment and a robe, so that people knew that he was the chief. That was the way people knew he was the chief. He wore those garments. And one day, in Africa, in this village, a man got stuck down in a ditch. Actually, they were drilling a water well. A water well that goes way down. There's not very much room down there. And he broke his leg down in there. Nobody could get him out. And this African chief was the strongest man in the village And so he comes up to the well and he sees the man down there and nobody's able to get him out and he's left there to die and he takes off his head garment and he puts it on the ground and he takes off his robe and he puts it on the ground and he goes down into this pit and he lifts this man, puts this man on his shoulder and he takes him up and out of the pit and saves his life. Let me ask you a couple of questions. When that chief took off his head garment and he took off his robe... Did he cease to be the chief? No. He's still the chief. The whole time. Even when he took it off and went down and picked the man out of the pit. And brought him up on his back to save him. And that's who Jesus is. It's a picture of who Jesus did. Is. He's God in the flesh. He took off his robe. And His glory and His power. And He went down and got you and me out of a pit. And He took us out. And He put back on His garment and His robe. That's what it means. That He emptied Himself. He's still deity. He's still fully man. He's still fully God. Hope that makes sense. Listen, we can't stoop any lower than Jesus has stooped. We can't ratchet down any lower than Jesus has You see, in the incarnation, so we've looked at dissension in the incarnation, he took on human form, this external appearance, and he veiled his power and his glory. He was God incognito, if you will. John 17 lays that out really well, but he also did something else. He died on a cross. Do you see how Paul says it? Even, that's a key word, even death on a cross. This is the worst form of death in that day that anyone could imagine. So he humbled himself in his dissension, in his incarnation, in his crucifixion. You see that? And we can never start a sentence with, God doesn't know how it feels. We can never start a sentence with, Jesus has never. Jesus doesn't understand. We can't start sentences that way. He has and he, and he does Hebrews 4, 14 through 16. Just listen to this. This is who Jesus is. And this is what Jesus has done. So if you find yourself in a deep, dark spot, listen to this. This is who your Savior is, if you know him. He says, the author of Hebrews says this. Since we have a great high priest, speaking of Christ, who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold to our confession. For we don't have a high priest who is unable to sympathize, hear this, sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted as we are, and yet without sin, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in time of need. Isn't that great? You don't just have a Savior that is just eternal and transcendent, but He's come near, and He loves you, and He cares for you, he wants to sympathize with you. Do you know this Jesus? Do you know him? He came from heaven to earth. He lived this life and he went through it all. And he died on a cross for you. He emptied himself and died on a cross for you. And maybe you know Christ. The question would be this. What weakness or sin that so easily entangles you? Do you need to ask your sympathetic Savior to provide more mercy and grace for today? And you do that through confession. You do that through repentance. He's a sympathetic Savior. You can bring stuff to Him. I remember in college, I knew a lot about Jesus. I could tell you the gospel forward and back, but I didn't know Jesus. Kids, listen to that. That's important. You can know a lot about Jesus and know the gospel and not know Jesus and trust in Him and make Him Lord of your life. It's important as kids who come to church. But you know, I I kept trying... I knew I had need, and the Spirit was working in my heart, but I couldn't ever really figure this out. Like, I'm just going to clean myself up a bit. And then, then God will be okay with me coming to His throne. That's not the way it works. You don't have to clean yourself up at all. You can't clean yourself up. He's a sympathetic Savior that comes down and stoops down where you're at and lifts you up. Trust Him. Believe Him. See, the fuel for our humility and putting off pride is to consider the humility of Christ. It's still at work. But here's the beauty. This text doesn't stop in verse 8. It doesn't stop at the cross. It moves to the risen Savior in verses 9 through 11. Look at it. Ri- we have a risen Savior, so we have hope that conquers sin and death as well. It's reason to celebrate. So here's your third idea. We need to celebrate, if we want to have the mind of Christ, we need to celebrate the exalted Christ. Do you see that? Look at verse 9. Verse 9 there. Therefore God, the Father, has highly exalted him. So Jesus has an exalted position because of his humility. Because of what he did. See, humility, humility catapults pride. Backfires. Jesus is the greatest example of that. So he has an exalted position that the Father has given him. He also has an exalted adoration. Look at it, verse ten, or verse the end of verse. Excuse me, verse nine. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. What is that? We'll get to that. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven, and on earth, and under the earth. So there's an adoration to this sympathetic High Priest who has died in our place, who's humbled himself. And then there in verse 11 is this exalted confession that we ought to have every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. What's the name above every name? We sing it Jesus and that's fine. It's his earthly name, but it's Lord, that he is Lord, that he is King Jesus. That's the name because of what he has done. To the glory of the Father. I want you to notice something really fascinating in this text. Who's exalting Jesus? What does that verse 9 say? It says God the Father is exalting Jesus. And what's the Son doing at the end of verse 11? He's glorifying the Father. There's a reciprocal relationship here with Father and Son. Where the Father is exalting Christ and saying, Here's my Son in whom I'm well pleased. And the, and the Son... The work on the cross. He's not glorying in himself. He's pointing to the Father and saying, Glorify the Father. Do You see the humility even in the Godhead in this passage. Here's the question though. Interestingly enough, one more nugget. In that day, Caesar was king, right? Caesar was king and he allowed no one To say anyone else was Lord. Caesar was Lord. This is a Roman colony. These are people under Caesar's lordship. If you will from a human standpoint. And Paul is saying something fascinating. He's saying no, 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 no. Caesar is not your Lord. Jesus is your Lord. So here's the question. The question in this text is not if we will recognize Jesus. The question of this text right here is when will you recognize Jesus is Lord? Because all will recognize Jesus at some point in the end. Do you see it there? Every knee shall bow, every tongue shall confess. It's just a question of when. Do you see him as Lord right now? Kids, this is really important. Maybe you've grown up in the church, and you're going, okay, I'm learning about all this stuff, but i got plenty of time later to consider Jesus as Lord of my life. It's important now. Because later, if you die without Christ, you're going to see him as Lord, but he's also going to say, depart from me, I never knew you. You're going to bow, but you're going to spend eternity away from him in hell. So there's a gospel call here. Do you see Jesus as Lord and Savior? Do you recognize him for who he is and what he's done? Romans 10 puts it really clearly like this. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, like we're talking about here, you will be saved. Do you see Jesus? Do you know Jesus as Lord? And then if you do, how are you celebrating and worshiping Jesus who is Lord? And I'll get real practical with you on this one. Did you know that verses 5 through 8, maybe in your Bible it shows up kind of like in the Psalms where it's indented? Here's what Paul's doing. In The first four verses, he's talking about these behaviors that they ought to have and saying, don't be prideful, be humble. And then he just breaks out in song. This is a hymn. Verse 5 through 11 is a hymn. And you know what we see in the early church? We see in the early church that they sang this hymn about Jesus. Verse 5 through 11. And so we exalt the risen Savior. And there's Gatlin. Here's a note. Where's Gatlin? Um, they sang this Usually in the first century during communion, so you get about five minutes until communion, so you can go write a song and figure it out. Just kidding. He could probably do it. I've watched him do it in like a week. Write a song. Does a great job with that. But what we want to do is we want to celebrate the exalted Christ, and we can do that through worship. The early church used this, these words of Paul, to sing hymns to Christ. Listen, you got all kinds of ways. To bring that to your life. You've got Spotify. You've got Alexa. You've got Playlist. So would you go spend daily time with the Lord. In his word. Cultivating the mind of Christ. Knowing the humility of Christ. Worship. Listen. See it's hard for pride to swell up. It's possible. But it's hard for pride to swell up. When you're opening your Bible. And you're praying or you're worshiping. That's a hard place for pride to well up. So let's cultivate that daily. How do we have the mind of Christ? We cultivate character of Christ. We consider the humility of Christ. And we celebrate the exalted Christ as Lord, as Lord. Thinking about Lord, there's this poem that compares Jesus. Maybe you've heard it. There's a poem that compares Jesus to Alexander the Great. I want you to just listen. If you need to close your eyes and think as I describe this, and it's just a comparison of these two men. Both of these men died at 33. Here's the poem. Jesus and Alexander died at 33. One lived and died for self. One died for you and me. The Greek died on a throne. The Jew died on a cross. One life triumphed, seemed the other a loss. One led armies forth. The other walked alone. One shed a whole world's blood. The other gave his own. One won the world in life and lost in death. The other lost his life to win the whole world's faith. Jesus and Alexander died at 33. One died in Babylon and one on Calvary. One gained all for self and one himself he gave. One conquered every throne, the other every grave. The one made himself God, the God made himself less. The one who lived but to blast, the other but to bless. When died, the Greek forever fell his throne of swords. But Jesus died to live forever, Lord of lords. Jesus and Alexander died at 33. The Greek made all men slaves. The Jew made all men free. One built a throne of blood. The other built on love. The one was born of earth. The other from above. One won all this earth to lose all earth and heaven. The other gave up all. That all to him be given. The Greek forever died. The Jew forever lives. Let me ask you a closing question. This will be your takeaway. Real simply, will you stand? Will we stand in pride or will we stoop in humility and devotion to our Savior? Let me pray. Father, your word says to us, he who exalts himself will be humbled. who humbles himself will be exalted. And we confess this morning that there is no way in and of ourselves that we have our own power to, to humble ourselves before you. That we're a people, even many of us, a people who know Christ. We need your grace. We need your spirit to work in us that we might continue to remember that you would Work in us humility that doesn't even exist. And Lord, I pray that we would fight our flesh in that. We would fight the urge to, to make much of ourselves, to look at our own interest. I thank you, Lord, that I see this church and I watch the way that they care for one another. I watch the way they serve this body. And I'm so grateful for the unity that is here. I'm so grateful for the intentionality and the humility that is here. Keep us there, Lord. Keep us in a place where we're looking to Christ, the exalted Christ, the risen Christ for what he's done and who he is. And we thank you that Christ is our high priest who's gone before us, that we can follow someone who is worthy of following and that we can take our needs to him confidently, not in shame, but confidently because he is and what He's done. Lord, we thank You for this text and Your Word that helps us live this life that we can't live because of Jesus. In His name we pray. Amen.